When the Lord began to speak enough, began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, marry a promiscuous woman, and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. <coughs> Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call her Lo-Ruhamah, which means not loved. For I will no longer show love to Israel, that I should at all forgive them. Yet I will show love to Judah, and I will save them, not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses and horsemen, but I, the Lord, their God, will save them. After she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, Gomer had another son. Then the Lord said, Call him Lo-Ami, which means not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together. They will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. One of my all-time favorite films is Beauty and the Beast. I'm talking about the Disney animation here. I loved the remake, but I think my childhood lies in that film. I love this film so much that when I was revising for my higher exams, I watched it every day. It's probably not something I would advise to anyone sitting exams ever, but I did get A's in those exams. <laughs> I love getting swept up in the drama of this film, but I think my favorite part of the story is a moment that's so small you could probably blink and miss it. Just after the drama of Belle being locked away in a tower, and after her first encounters with this very scary, very angry beast, the beauty and the beast are finally getting to know each other. As with all great films, this means that there has to be a montage of moments where they are getting to know each other. And it's one of these moments that is my favorite. The two are sitting across from each other at the breakfast table, both with bowls of porridge in front of them. The next thing we see is a disgusted look on Belle's face as the beast has picked up his bowl and guzzled his face into the entire thing. When he notices the look on her face, he puts down his bowl and he clumsily tries to pick up a spoon and rather unsuccessfully tries to use it. At this moment, Belle picks up her bowl and face first goes into her breakfast. There is love 
care and compassion here blossoming. And the two are going out of their way to show each other just how much they care about each other. This is a moment of tender love in that story. I wonder how each of you show someone how much they mean to you. And this brings us to our story this morning. Because this too is a story of love. It's the story of a God who goes out of his way to show just how much he loves each and every one of his people to depths that we can't even imagine. If I'm completely with honest with you, I found this hard to see when I first read the passage. The story of Hosea is one that I was unfamiliar with, and it's not the easiest read. A little bit disgruntled when I found out it was what I would be preaching on. I think I was initially struck with how this story is weighed down by tragedy, and that blinded me to the fact it is also lifted up with hope. A divine call was heard by Hosea, and it was one that turned his life into a lived out prophecy, an acting out of the faithful love of God. And that's the paradox that we are looking at this morning, the God who is faithful to the unfaithful. As we explore this paradox this morning, I want us to look at the faithfulness of God that's shown in several different ways throughout this text. Shown in the faithfulness through God's call to Hosea, shown in God's faithfulness to his people, and shown in our God who is faithful to the end. We meet Hosea at a time of relative peace and prosperity in Israel's history. It was a time when the rich were thriving, but that meant that everything came at a cost. The strong were taking advantage of the weak, and the wealthy were oppressing widows and orphans, and so even justice was coming at a price. Courts were doing very little to help the situation. To put it simply, it was a time when social and moral conditions were degrading. And so God had a message to give to this northern kingdom of Israel. And it was through Hosea that he would choose to do this. Right before Hosea had come other <laughs> prophets who'd already tried and failed to preach against the sin and idolatry that was rife in this nation. So this made Hosea's task much harder. People needed to hear him and actually respond to what he had to say because there was a certainty of punishment that lay right before this nation due to the serious nature of their sin. In February this year, a really good friend of mine had a baby. When I found out that this baby was on the way, I was very excited and instantly thought, what can I get, what can I do, what can I do to kind of show how excited I am? So slightly naively, I thought, ah, oh, I can make a blanket. That'll be a really easy thing to do. Nope, not so much. Didn't realize quite how long that would take me, how difficult it would be. Um, but even still, in another moment of madness, I decided I'm gonna make a toy to go along with this. That, that seems like an easy thing to do. Um, I'd also decided to use lots of different colors in making this, which although made it look much nicer, made it much harder again to make. 
when this baby was born and I gave my friend these things I'd made. The first thing she said was, I can't believe you put so many colors in this. I know how difficult that is to do when I've tried to make it myself. <coughs> you see, I could have written a card. I could have told my friend how much I cared about her and her new baby. But it was the fact that I put that love into practice, that I made something and lived out my love, that truly conveyed to her how much she meant to me. Because sometimes words just don't cut it. Hosea was faithful to God's call. And he was faithful to a call not simply to make him a mouthpiece to the message of God, but to live it out and be a living prophecy. This was a message that needed to be lived out because nothing short of this would accurately convey the depths of love that God has for his people. Words simply were no longer enough. And so God's call to Hosea, as we read in verse 1, is to marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. And this is exactly what Hosea does. And a family is created. Yet this wife will be unfaithful to him. And these children will disown him. Hosea's faithfulness to a call to live a life filled with pain is ultimately used to demonstrate to the people of Israel the depths of love that their God has for them. For just as Hosea entered into the covenant of marriage with his wife, Gomer, God had made a covenant with his people. <coughs> and just as she was unfaithful to Hosea, the Israelites were unfaithful to God. Despite the pain that it inevitably brought him to live out this message, Hosea was faithful to that call. And I wonder if some of us here today, there's a challenge that lies in that for us. To go beyond professing our faith, to living it out, even when that can seem strange or scary and potentially quite risky. Even though this call to Hosea did seem strange and scary and risky, he courageously obeyed. Ultimately, however, this story is not about one man's faithfulness. Although that's pivotal to the telling of this story, it is about so much more. It's about the demonstration of God's faithful love to his people. Because even though we believe in a God who demands our faithfulness, he carries on being faithful to us even in our unfaithfulness. So as I mentioned earlier, this was a time where there is increased wealth in the kingdom of Israel. However, seldom does that kind of wealth actually please God. Because things are going so well, people are losing sight of their need for God. They're putting their hope in places that are out with him. And along with that, they're putting their worship in places out with him. The culture around them began to dominate their lives and false worship was rife in the kingdom, expressed in cultic practices and worshiping other gods. In our daily lives, we too can run the risk of assimilating to the culture around us. We can become 
absorbed by or choose to buy into this narrative that if we have enough money, have the right job, wear the right clothes, then finally we'll find the fulfillment that we are searching for. Even just this week, I saw an advert where you could win a personalized tub of yogurt. <laughs> the company were calling it Yogurt, um, which is quite clever branding, and sadly this almost worked on me. Before I knew it, I was on their website, like picking my ingredients that would go into my tub of yogurt, thinking to myself, this is what's missing from my life. How cool would it be to have a tub of yogurt with my name on it in my fridge? Um, gladly, I came to my senses. But in that moment, it was very clear to me how we, the consumer, can so easily become consumed by the culture that is around us. Author D.F. Wallace illustrates this really well, and he says, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God to worship is that pretty much everything else you worship will eat you alive if you worship money and things. <coughs> the only choice we get is what to worship. So I ask you, what are you worshiping? Perhaps things in your life are going really well, but in that, you found yourself thankful for the things that you can tie to that, and not to the God who ultimately provided them in the first place. Or perhaps things are a little harder and you've placed your comfort and security in the tangible things that are right in front of you. And instead of turning to God, you've actually turned away from him. Are there things in your life that you have put your trust in and perhaps placed them in the places where you should have placed God? If we look a little further ahead to chapter three in the book of Hosea, we see that even though she has been unfaithful and has left him, God now calls Hosea to take back his wife. And actually it's, it's a step beyond that as Hosea goes out of his way to do everything he can do to get her back. He longs for her to come back. And it's through this that we see God's deep longing to see his people restored to him. And he will do all that he can do to bring them back because there is a deep ache in the heart of God. The more God called after Israel, the more it seemed that she strayed from him. They were breaking their covenant with God. And through this, it's really clearly illustrated to us that our God knows the pain of betrayal. I wonder if some of us here this morning need to remember that. Maybe you yourself have felt hurt, let down, turned aside, and in the middle of that, you feel incredibly lonely. But our God isn't just a God who, who knows about this pain on some kind of intellectual level, but it's a pain he has deeply felt 
and he wants to feel it with you. He may be almighty and all-powerful, but he's also all-knowing and all-feeling. And he's with you in this. And so, through the betrayal that Hosea has been subjected to, Hosea is letting his, God is letting his people know through Hosea just how deeply their betrayal hurts him. God wants us to feel the impact that that is having on him. And he challenges people about their faithfulness to him, not to pile loads of guilt on them, but to simply show them just how faithful he is. He wants to show us that even if we deeply wound ourselves, other people, and God himself, there is always, always a way back to him. He wants to welcome his people back. He wants to welcome them home. This reminded me of that beautiful parable that we see in Luke 15 with the prodigal son and the image of a God who goes running to meet his child with arms flung wild, wide open. God is longing to see his people come back to him, but we will soon see the limits that he puts to, on his patience. There is a punishment that has been promised and it will come to a people who continue to ignore his threats. The promise of punishment was laid out to us in our passage this morning through the naming of the three children. The first, a son, was to be named Jezreel. And this is a name of a town that is known for its bloodshed and violence. This name may have been one that once stood for glory and victory, but it's now one that stands for savagery. When I looked up the root of the name Jezreel, it also means God will scatter. And this is a sign of the exile and desolation that is to come in the nation. The second child, a daughter, was to be named Lo-Ruhama, which simply means not loved. There is absolutely no ambiguity there as to what God is trying to say. And I think it's a sign that has even more desperation in it than the naming of the first child. For it's one thing to lose wars and a kingdom, but they are now losing the love, mercy, and compassion of their God. Finally, the third child, Lo Am I, which means not my people. I just think this name is profoundly sad as God is divorcing and disowning his people. Despite God's efforts, this call is ignored just like the many before and Israel don't respond. They failed to remember that it is their God who sustains them. They failed to stay true to right and proper worship. The nation shows no sign of repentance. And so just as God has warned, the Israelites are taken into exile and there was desolation in the land. The nation was never to exist in the same way again. But our God is faithful to the end. Yes, punishment came but restoration ultimately came beyond that. 
Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together. They will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. God will remain faithful to the covenant that he made to the Israelites. And the ultimate fulfillment of this will come with the ultimate sign of God's faithfulness. A sign that is extended to each and every one of us, for God will send his son, Jesus Christ, to live among us, die for us, and raise again to grant us eternal life if we believe in him. Theologian Derek Kidner says this, he loves the loveless and values the other otherwise worthless, enough to let the ransom for them cost him everything. He loves the loveless and values the otherwise worthless, enough to let the ransom for them cost him everything. If this doesn't show us the faithfulness of God, if this doesn't show us just how much he loves us, then I don't know what else will. Restoration would come and judgment is reversed to grace as God brings about one big family reunion. He conquers division by giving us one leader, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Through this story, this story of love, we've seen our God faithful to the call that he's placed on one man, a call to show his faithfulness to his people and a call that will fundamentally show his faithfulness to the very end. For they will once more become his people who he will once more show his love to and God's people will once more be scattered. Yet this time, they will be scattered like seed to be sown throughout the world to share the good news of Jesus, to share the good news of his abundantly faithful and never-ending love to all those who need to hear it.